This is the Amazon Planet Podcast, Episode 9, Teaching with Problems. I'm your host, Joel Amadon. I hope this recording finds you well, and thank you for taking the time to listen. This episode of the Amazon Planet Podcast features the book, Teaching Problems and the Problems of Teaching by Magdalene Lampert. I've been aware of this book for uh, over 10 years now, and it's it's, yes, it's, it's, so it's been out there for a while, and it specifically is focused in on education. And I know the original intent of this podcast was to take books and other material that's not necessarily focused on the classroom and think about what does it mean to focus it on the classroom. This one, it's explicitly about the classroom and about teaching. But I think that this book has value, uh, and also it's coming up on ber- my birthday, so I'm going to take a little liberty here and use this book as uh, uh, for episode nine and to focus on this idea of teaching with problems. But before jumping into the book, a quick reminder that the purpose of the Amazon Planet podcast is learning how to teach better. Ultimately, the goal of the podcast and my own personal goal is to lead people to love others through teaching. And obviously, we can do that through a book called Teaching with Problems and the Problems of Teaching. And we're going to jump into the categories. So that's the high five learnings, the now you know, thinking about 2020 hindsight, given the learnings of this book. We're going to jump into a scenario, got a good one, I think, for you, and then we're going to sum up for a seven-year-old. But before that, before I jump into the big ideas that I'm pulling out of this book, just a quick reminder, in no way will I be able to communicate the whole value of the book, and even if I did, it would be from my perspective. In other words, if you like what you hear, go get the book for yourself. Links to purchase the book can be found in the show notes at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode nine. Or seek it out wherever you buy high-quality books like this one. Also, wherever you buy high-quality used books. So, you know, Amazon's got good used books, uh, half-price books. Um, Square Books Jr. uh, has a, or Square Books, which has an offshoot called Off Square Books here in Oxford, Mississippi. They've got some used books in there. Might not necessarily find this in there, but you know what? I love going to a used bookstore and treasure hunting. And if and if you went treasure hunting in a used bookstore and you found Teaching with Problems and Problems for Teaching on a shelf, man, snag it up because there's lots of great gems in there, as you're going to hear in just a few minutes. All right, so now let's jump into it. Let's jump into our high five. So these, are again, are the five learnings that I'm taking out of this book. And if you could see this book, if uh, I'm holding it up in front of the microphone, it's got post-its, tabs, it's been written in a bunch of times. I've actually lent this book out, so it's got writings not only from me, but from other people. I'm like, who wrote my book? And they're writing right next to where I wrote in the book, so you can't really blame them. But uh, all the different learnings that are in here, and I picked up five. So one of the first things that this book has taught me is, well, actually, wait, 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 let's back up for a second. Let's just talk about the book first. The book is capturing Magdalene Lampert. So she's the author. She was a professor at the University of Michigan, but then before that, she was a professor at Michigan State University. And what she did was, as a professor, professor she taught teachers. But in, also what she did was she used a fifth-grade classroom as like a lab where she continued to hone her craft of teaching, Right. And what she did in, for this book is basically captured an entire year of her teaching in order to, uh, I'm going to say capture again, in order to document what excellence in teaching looks like. And I don't say that in a way that I think that she thought that she was um, you know, better than anyone else, but she was a really good teacher. I mean, and it was acknowledged. She was a really good teacher. And the things that she did and how she, she documented her thinking about the things that she did 
was so valuable, especially to me as a teacher who was coming into this book at a time where I thought I was doing pretty good. I thought I was a, a pretty good teacher. And what this did was like take me to another level and thinking about, no, 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 how do you take everything that you do in the classroom and point it towards maximizing the learning that's going on through what you are doing or through the teaching that you are doing? Okay, So I think this book has value for the the first-year teacher, the veteran teacher, anyone that's looking to learn more about teaching, this book is gold. And I've, I've it's one of the books, and a question that Tim Ferriss often asks about people in this podcast is, what's a book that you've given away? I think I've given away this book at least five times. At least five times. And I can't think of too many books I've given away that many times. And so, anyway, going back into it, into the high five, the first thing that I learned from this book is to differentiate te- teaching and learning. Now that seems weird to talk about differentiating teaching and learning. That you know those are two different things. But maybe you're not. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't see those as two different things. Like they're just things that happen in the classroom. But teaching and learning being explicitly different. I don't know. It was an aha thing for me, and I, I I almost hate to admit that, but it was like an aha thing in that you know teaching is something that the the teacher does in order to facilitate the learning happen. And just because a teacher does something that they're labeling as teaching doesn't necessarily mean that learning is happening. Or just because a student learned something doesn't mean that the teacher actually did something to facilitate it. So just the fact that those two things, which you know were kind of like a block for me, like a, you know, like fused together, like there was no differentiating, it was just like a one big block of something, or actually two separate things. That was something that was eye-opening in this book, and the way she kind of broke it down into thinking about what is a te- what is the actions of a teacher, what is a teacher doing, and what is actually learning and really defining it. Um, and so that goes actually into the second thing that I would say is a learning from this book is that is that I should have a theory about how teaching and learning happens, right? And you know, all of a sudden, like people are like, "Whoa, theory!" Like dude, I'm just trying to go for a jog and let's do a podcast. What are you doing talking about theory? Well, I mean, a theory, all really a theory is, is is something that predicts or that we can explain about what has happened in the past and to explain what will happen in the future given similar events, right? So it's explanatory, but it's also predictive. That's a theory, right? And so in the book, she lays out a theory of how teaching happens. and, And this is something that I really have grabbed onto and it it really helps me think about it. And so she has drawn in here like an instructional triangle. So imagine a triangle that's kind of upside down. So imagine like, you know, a triangle kind of looking like a pyramid and then flip it down. And so the the flat part or the top of that flip triangle is basically a a two-ended arrow, which is pointing to students and in this case, content, in this case, we'll say mathematics. Students in mathematics, and that is what we want. We want to develop this two-edged arrow or a relationship between students and, in this case, mathematics. And so when we talk about teaching, you can talk about a relationship with any sort of content. In this case, we're naming the content of mathematics. And so trying to develop this relationship, which would mean that the students are learning mathematics. And so she'll talk about this idea of studying, and which is studying is anything they're doing in order to develop that relationship with content. Well... What I want to say is that, you know, another thing that she points out here is that students are learning all the time. I mean, they're, they're, we're all learning all the time. I'm learning how to do a podcast. I'm learning, like for right now, learning how to slow down my talking so I don't go, uh, 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 all the time when I'm doing these podcasts. 
or I'm learning how to not move so much so the audio is not full of me flipping pages and like banging things on the table. I'm learning, right? Kids are learning all the time in schools too. They might be learning new curse words that they can use on the bus or they might be learning how to uh, you know, follow some procedure within a science classroom. They could be learning how to, you know, discreetly look at their phone while they're in class. You know, there's things that they're learning all the time. They not, might not necessarily be learning the things that we want them to learn. And so teaching is about getting students to develop the relationship with something that we want them to, like a kind of relationship with the content that we want them to have a relationship with. And so then Lampert will talk about, she kind of continues her, her ideas about it, is that teaching is basically a series of relationships. So remember, we have this flipped triangle, so the flat side's on the top, because to a point at the bottom. The two points on the top are uh, students and content. In this case, we're thinking about mathematics. And at the bottom, the bottom point is where the teacher is. And so the teacher has, and you look at the line, think about a line between the teacher and the student, the teacher should have a relationship with a student. Okay, That's something that the teacher should do. Another thing that relationship that a teacher needs to have is with the content. So in this case, mathematics. So thinking about it, a teacher needs to have a relationship with mathematics. And then, this is the weird one. So imagine, so you got this flip triangle, like, you know, equilateral triangle, like a regular old triangle, the one that you picture in your head. So flip triangle, the points at the bottom, flat sides on the top. So imagine a line going from the point at the bottom to in the middle of that line between teacher, I'm saying between student and math, right? That is another relationship that the teacher has. A teacher has a relationship with the relationship between students and mathematics. And that's where I see is like where what you see in the classroom occurs, right? So I have, well, I mean, I guess the other stuff has relationship or occurs in the classroom, but I have a relationship with the students. I have a relationship with mathematics. And then I'm thinking about what do I do to facilitate the relationship between the student and mathematics, right? So what are the lessons I put in? What are the assessments? What are the projects? What are the whatever? What, what do I do in the classroom to help facilitate the relationship? And you can see, like, there's things I could do to not facilitate the relationship, right? I could have a pop quiz on something they're not prepared for, which could then scar people and like, like, ah, this guy is putting me in a bad situation. Why would I trust this person? And all of a sudden, like me as being a proxy for the content, all of a sudden their relationship with mathematics goes down the tubes because I'm doing things that don't make sense in the classroom, right? So that's, that's what a teacher does. A teacher can develop that relationship with students. They can develop the relationship with content, and then they can develop the relationship between the, the relationship between students and content, which means... I'm thinking about I'm using those developing relationships I'm developing the relationships between the student and the, and then the developing the relationship with content in order to become the best at putting something into play in between the student and the content to facilitate the relationship. I'm thinking about lessons, I'm thinking about activities, I'm thinking about how do I design something that's uh, the best at helping a particular student learn the math that I want them to learn. Okay? So Having a theory. So a high five so far, differentiate teaching and learning, have a theory about how teaching and learning happens, and then that theory then leads to action. So given that understanding of that's my role of as a teacher, well, what are my actions? Well, I better develop those relationships with students, right? 
I better have a good relationship with content. If that's how I think about the things that happen, those two relationships better be solid. So as soon as I get my roster, what am I doing to learn my students' names? What are they about? What are they interested in? How do they best operate? Like, how do they work well? Uh, do they work well together? It, have they moved in recently? You know, what are the things that I need should know about in order to help uh, be the best teacher for those students? And then thinking about what do I put into place in order to facilitate the relationship? So, for example, if I'm thinking about trying to develop a relationship between students and mathematics, I'm going to make sure I don't do anything that dissolves that relationship. For example, like, you know, I'm, I'm someone that has taught math and I teach teachers how to teach math at a university. So a lot of people see me as a math guy. So if you go to a cocktail party and say, hey, you know, this is what I do. And they're like, oh, math. Man, I never had a good relationship with math. You know, like kinda, I get that over and over again. And so trying to think, like, what, what do I do to make sure that my students in the future are not saying, man, I, I don't really like math. I'm not a math person. How do I get them to have a good relationship with mathematics? And so it might start being thinking about what are the actions I take in order to facilitate a good relationship. Like one, I'm not going to punish with mathematics, right? I'm not going to do something that doesn't make sense with mathematics. I'm not going to say, oh, you were bad in class. You need to do 20 extra problems. All right. You're basically saying, you know, it's like saying, oh yeah, for punishment, you got to go hang out with Billy. Well, guess what? You're probably not going to want to hang out with Billy because you're associating hanging out with Billy with punishment. So I'm not going to do that with mathematics. So that's one thing. You know, don't punish with the content. Dang. Another thing you think about is how do you go about... Um, well, one action that I, I've thought a lot about is how do I handle tests, right? So going back to that, you know, kind of seeing people at a cocktail party and they know that I'm, I teach math and like, like, oh man, you know, hate math, hate math tests and stuff like that. And if you said math tests to that person, they'd probably start twitching a little bit, right? And so there's just not this great... Um, you know, a relationship with math tests. And so my cooperating teacher back in the day, Joe Dye from Jadesville Parker, we, you've heard about him on this podcast before, but he's had a big influence on me and my teaching, called his test written learning celebrations. Never had a test, always given written learning celebrations. And so I borrowed that, and he'd be proud of that if I said I borrowed it. Actually, he'd be more proud if I said I stealed, I stole it, because he said, all teachers are pirates and we steal things in order to do what's best for our students. And that's exactly what I did, Joe. I, I stole it because I thought my students would operate best with it. So this idea of celebrations, right? So let's call a math test a celebration. Already we got a little bit, uh, it's not that much better, but there's just, hey, we're not doing a test, we're doing a celebration. Like, oh, it's still a test, but they're smiling while they're saying it. So we're, we're up, in the, up in the relationship just a little bit. Then what we say is, you know, and I, I kept thinking further, like, how do I keep developing this thing, this thing that I'm putting in between my students and mathematics, how do I keep developing this thing to help maximize the impact it's going to have on developing that relationship? So not only call it celebration, but then also think like, okay, well, what do you need for a celebration? A lot of times you get invited to a celebration, you get an invitation, all right? So I would give out invitations to my celebrations. And on the invitation, it would tell you, what do you need to prepare for the celebration, what do you need to demonstrate understanding of? And so that's something you need to bring your understanding because in order to celebrate what you know, you need to be able to show what you know and here's what we want you to be able to know. And so it would list the objectives that we would have and that would be something for the students to be like, hey, here's exactly the things I'm gonna be looking for in the celebration. It's not cheating, 
It's not cheating. I'm telling you what I'm looking for. I mean, we want to sell. If you have this understanding, we want to celebrate it. And even like the fact that it says celebrate and not test. Like testing is like, I don't trust you. I don't trust that you have it. So I'm going to test you, right? To make sure you have it versus, oh, do you understand that? All right. Good job. Do you understand that? Yeah. Good job. And then versus, you know, celebration has a, like a more asset based kind of understanding to it. So we want to think about, uh, celebrating understanding. Okay. So we tell them what they need to know. And then we might ask them, Hey, what have you done to prepare? Um, you know, what questions do you have? Cause even if they had questions right before, you know, so, you know, sometimes you'd see people coming in the day of a test or in this case, a celebration. And they say, you know what? I have a question, right? I have a question. Can I get this question asked? And like, I've heard some teachers say, you know what? You should have known it by now. You should know that by now. We've done that. We recovered that yesterday. Well, if the stress of a test has gotten them to come in and say, hey, I have a question, why the heck wouldn't you answer it? Why wouldn't you answer it? Like, answer, they want to know. So answer the question. And then if they demonstrate understanding, guess what we can do? We could celebrate it. It just makes sense, right? And again, this leading back to the theory leads to action, right? The theory leads to action. And then keep going further with this idea of celebration and facilitating a relationship. They would do, you know, do the test, do the celebration. And through it, I'm saying, hey, I just want to see what you know so we can celebrate what you know. I'm going to just celebrate what you understand uh, with regards to these objectives. And, you know, some kid might come up and like, you know, I can't, I don't know how to do this. I'm just going to leave it blank. And like, no, don't leave it blank. And knowing that the intent is to gauge what their relationship was with mathematics, what's their understanding of this thing. Given that that's the intent and not to see if they can just write on some piece of paper their understanding, what if I just said, okay, well, tell me what you would do on this problem. What do you mean, tell me what you would do? No, just tell me, what would you do on this problem? I would do this, this, and this. Well, that's exactly right. Why don't you go do that? I mean, the point is that their you know, hesitation in putting down something wrong might stop them from putting down something right. I don't want that to be the case. So if, what, what if they come up to me and give me an oral answer and I'm able to give them credit for it just orally? Why not? Why not do that? The point is to let them know. The point is to see what they know. And if they do know it, okay, well, maybe next time we say, you know what, you got to just trust yourself. Put the answer down on the paper. Yes, we do need to prepare you for doing paper and pencil tests or you know, traditional sorts of assessments. But I have the freedom right now to just see what do you understand? And if it has to be asking you a question orally, whatever, that's fine. Or you have different ways to represent it, okay, that's fine. Um, that, that's something that we shouldn't get in the way of a student demonstrating their understanding. We shouldn't let a form get in the way. Yes, we need to prepare them for the future. But for right now, for this one problem where they're going to leave it blank, if I don't, but I won't know what they do or don't understand if they don't even put down a response. So I want them to put down a response. Um, and then, so how I would then uh, give the results back is, you know, take all the answers that combine to a certain objective, uh, basically, and, and use a scale of one through five or zero through five, actually, to gauge each answer. Um, and, and my scale from zero to five is pretty simple. I got it from a guy named Doug at Beloit Memorial High School in Wisconsin. Anyway, five would be like, yes. So I'd be like, is the, the response demonstrating understanding of this objective? And five would be, Yes, exclamation point. Four would be yes, but, you know, they made a little mistake here or there, maybe a little bookkeeping mistake. 
Uh, three would be a maybe, like, you know, three was my default. You kind of, everyone started at three and, and you either proved you knew it or proved you didn't know it because, you know, we're kind of on a normal curve. We're all kind of starting with, a, you know, medium kind of understanding. And then two would be no, there's, you're showing you don't understand, but there's a little bit of something here that's correct. Or one just means no, like you're not demonstrating understanding. And zero is no response. So taking those scores that we have for each objective and then like looking at a test and say, all right, this is for this objective, this is for this objective, and then combine all the ones on the same objective, average them out, and then I could go and say, hey, you got this on this objective, this on this objective, and maybe there's four objectives on the assessment. So there'd be four different um, scores. And so giving them scores that way, don't just add them all up and say, hey, you got a 12. That's a failure out of 20, 12 out of 20 on this test and you failed. And just hand it back, you know, all written in red. And that's all they, all they see is that red. And then they're done. They're not going to learn anymore. Assessments or a test is to help not only get information for me as the uh, teacher, but also information back to the students so they can get better. So I wanted to break them down by objectives. So let's say a kid did get a 12, 12 out of 20, which I think on our scale back at Sockbury High School, I was failing. But the problem there is what kind of understanding did they show? They showed some understanding. They got 12 out of 20. So in the 12 points, there's some understanding there, right? So what if it was 5, 5, 1, and 1, right? That would add up to 12. Well, 5, that's too like 100% like yes on showing understanding of an objective. And then there was two ones where there's just no understanding, right? So now I know, at least I know where to focus. They did awesome here. I can say, hey, you did, you did awesome. You showed exactly what we were looking for here on these two objectives. On these objectives, we're kind of in the dark. What did we, you know, so something happened there, right? Uh, or else, you know, what if they got a couple fours and um, uh, a couple fours and a couple twos, right? So that's a little bit something different. So they're doing a lot of things right, but you know the, the ones that are just twos, they, they probably need to do a little bit of work on. You know, so it gives you more information than just saying, hey, you failed, right? No matter what, we can celebrate some sort of understanding if they did the assessment. Let's celebrate what they know. And then we know exactly what we need to focus on to help get them understanding of it all. So when thinking about this book and thinking about how do you, and, and you could hear a lot of thinking behind this, right? Well, this book said, hey, if you have a theory, then go forward and have a reason for, have a theory for how learning happens, teaching and learning happens, and then have a reason for why you do things based on that theory, right? And one thing, and one example that's straight from the book, not, not mine, but hers, was she would have her students use pens when they were doing their schoolwork or their um, uh, classwork. And some of you might be saying, wait, they did math with a pen? And you might be twitching a little bit. Well, what was she saying? She's like, your relationship with math, just like your relationship with people, it will have its ups and downs, right? You're going to make mistakes, right? You don't need to do things in pencil and erase any, any hint of a mistake. There's going to be mistakes. Anytime you build a relationship with something, you're going to have mistakes. So let's keep the mistakes. Maybe we put a line through them, but we're not going to get rid of them. They're a part of your developing the relationship with Mathematic, and they have value. Mistakes have value. And so she's taking this theory and then showing how you translate that theory into action. And so now you have a reason for everything you do. And this is where I fell short when I first encountered this book. I did some things because I thought they were funny. I thought they were cute. But instead, why don't I say that 
can tie everything back to a reason, right? And another thing that she did was um, she saw how you could use a single problem and use that to develop a relationship with mathematics by allowing a really nice problem like um, a car goes 40 miles per hour, how far in three and a half hours does it go? She's doing fifth graders and they're trying to figure out what, what the answer is there. So they're talking about rates, obviously. And so she would take a problem like that and have a, a structured way in which they were going to write down the problem, write down some ideas about how to solve the problem, uh, then talk about it in small groups, and then they would talk about a whole class and really, I mean, stretch the whole problem out for a, a whole class period. It was amazing. That's how she taught with problems, was taking good, nice, rich problems like that and and using it as opportunities to develop a lot of reasoning skills, a lot of communication skills, some thinking skills that they can then use within the classroom. And she's doing that, again, to help them figure out, how do I work in math on my own? How do I work in math in small groups? How do I work in math in a large group? How do I communicate my understanding? How do I see if my understanding matches up with somebody else? Can I compare uh, my reasoning with somebody else. And so, again, everything has a reason and uh, can be drawn back to that theory for how teaching and learning happens. Another thing that I learned from this book is that teaching isn't magic, right? So in the book, there are many dis- classroom discussions that she had with her uh, students where she's inside her own head explaining why she's doing things. Or like you can hear the questions that she's having in her head, like, should I call on this person? Maybe... Maybe I need to have some, a different sort of contribution. I saw what they wrote on their paper. Maybe that would be a good thing to have someone talk about right now. And you hear the logic in her reasoning about how she's calling on students. And I mean, it might be a f- several pages that she's using to like construct what happened in just a few minutes. And that's the problem of teaching, right? Fr- from the book, that like, Teaching with Problems and the Problems of Teaching. Like teaching is a problem and she's trying to solve this problem by thinking about how do I sequence these contributions within this classroom discussion. So I'm just not telling them what to do, but they are kind of discovering the answer for themselves and leaning on the logic of mathematics to do so. But I like it. I mean, even though it's hard, like I see that there's a path to making it happen. And so that teaching isn't magic. That teaching is about getting reps, getting experience and thinking about how do I make it happen? Uh, in my own classroom, but not to assume that it's a magical thing. It is something that I can do. It just, it's going to take time. And it's going to take knowing my students, knowing the content, and developing nice ways for my students to interact with the content. The final thing that I had was, uh, I learned from this book, from my high five, is to trust your students. And just, that's a big thing, is just trusting your students and making sure that they that there's faith put into them, that there's faith put into them that they are going to provide contributions that move forward the lessons of the day, right? If I construct good problems, good quality problems, and let them go to work on them to trust that they're going to come up with some, some unique things. And that's what's been awesome is like when I've done that and allowed students to think, like they've come up with something like, I've never thought of that before. I've never, I never would have came up with that. And that's what I like doing with my students right now is like I have them take a small portion of my class and start you know, using it to, to teach some of the content we're supposed to be doing for that day. And just seeing the activities and things that they come up with, like you know, even today I saw some cool things where uh, my students were asked by the students who were doing some of the teaching to create a script on different types of questioning, funneling versus focusing questioning. This is something built on from the 
an article we read by Beth Herbal Eisenman. And um, just seeing what they were able to come up with was amazing that a my students are able to do that and my students will come up with things that uh, are, are good contributions. So that's my high five. So differentiate teaching and learning. Have a theory for how teaching and learning happens. That theory then leads to action. That's my third one. Teaching isn't magic. That's my fourth one. And trust your students. That's my fifth one. Um, next one is, so now you know. So what would I do differently given this book? I mean, and I've, again, I've had this book for a while, but if I could go all the way back to when I first started teaching, I would say don't do anything a student can do. Don't do anything a student can do because, again, going back to this idea of trusting my students, that my students are capable of so much more. And if I just would let them go. And too often... You know, even though I did, I worked, taught a lot in groups and things like that, it still was the Joel show. It still was the Joel show. I mean, shoot, I started my own podcast. It must be the Joel show. But uh, the Joel show was, you know, they're doing their things, but eventually like, okay, I'm going to come in and be the closing act here and it's going to be awesome. But instead, like, what, wouldn't it be more awesome if the points that I want to make in the close of the lesson were being said or, um, you know, talked about by one of the students. That one of the students who just learned it, who is in the same peer group as the other people in the classroom, is talking about it rather than the person that's supposed, that, you know, is in quotation marks, supposed to be the expert. What if we make the, other, the kids the experts, right? And if they have the understanding, why not let them explain it to the others, right? Why not that, let them do it? So that's, that's what I would do given... Some 2020 hindsight here. All right, next uh, thing, I have a scenario. So it's, off, it's a common uh, thing to experience. Like as a student, student hands in some homework, you take a look at it, and it's cheating. Uh, they're totally copied from another student exactly word for word. Even if it's a word problem, you can see like, yeah, there's, you know, it doesn't really look right. Actually, they misspelled a word or two just to kind of throw you off the track, but it's still the same thing. Or else it's, uh, you know, copied... Uh, kind of symbol manipulation or something like that. But you can tell there's cheating. Now, thinking back to the, the theory that leads to action, right? The theory of teaching, how teaching and learning happens and how that leads to action. Well, what if we think about this cheating not as they're trying to you know, break the rules, but they're trying to achieve success. They're trying to show that they have some understanding. It's a bad way. It actually doesn't allow them to show understanding because they're, they're just copying somebody else's work. But if they're copying good work, now we're getting there. And then what if we said like, hey, how does what you wrote down like that you didn't understand that you just copied, how does what you wrote down make sense? Does it make sense? How does it make sense? And start taking the energy that they, you know, I mean, I mean at least the, by copying something, they're showing that they at least want a relationship or they at least want a functional relationship with mathematics. They want to show success is defined by society, right? They want, it, they want the grade. In other words, they want the grades so they can move on. But, but what if we communicate to them, like, yes, I appreciate your efforts, but they're in the wrong way. Like, you can't get by doing that, and that's not going to be a good way moving forward. But I appreciate that you wanted to do, show success. You could have just sat there and did nothing and just didn't do anything and said, I don't care. I just, I'll take the F. So, yeah, it's not morally, it's not right. Ethically, it's not right. But at least how do we take that effort and say, you know, I see what you did. I acknowledge it, it's wrong, but how do we say, how do we move forward from here? So rather than turning it into a bad situation, how can we turn it in a way to build up the relationship with mathematics? 
And so that's what I would do with cheating. I would say like, hey, I understand this. I see that you're trying to be successful. This is not the way to go about it. This is going to, if it continues, it's going to ruin your relationship, not only with math, but with me as a teacher and also with the person that you copied. But how about we move forward and say, hey, how does what you copied down make sense, right? And how do we go forward and you know, laying out the practices that you need to have in order so this doesn't happen again? I think that could be a good way, thing to go, thing to do. Anyway, finally, let's talk about summing up for a seven. So I was trying to think, like, how could I sum this book up, which is all about teaching up for a seven-year-old without talking about teaching? Well, I, I thought of this game, Pandemic. If you've played Pandemic, thank you, you're a nerd, uh, along with me. But it, it's, I would say it's definitely a nerd game. It's a nerd board game, but it, it's a fun, it's definitely a fun board game. It's, a, it's bigger on the Amazon household that might say that we're nerds. But anyway, whatever. We love it. We love it. It's fun. And so in Pandemic, it's a great game where you are trying to save the world. Everyone that's playing the game is trying to save the world. You are a team. We are collectively trying to save the world. So we either all win or we all lose. And we're all trying to achieve the same goal of eradicating the viruses and making sure everyone's healthy from these sicknesses. Love it. Absolutely love it. So I see this book as showing... Uh, this is as being similar in the fact that you know the, the, with the board game there's a lot of changing variables uh, people are in different roles all the time and there's lots of different unexpected things that happen but we're all in it together to try to achieve the same goal all the players are in there trying to achieve the same goal lots of different things can happen we can be in different roles in different situations but we're all trying to achieve the same goal and that's what I see is happening in the classroom. That's what I see when she's setting up not this classroom where she is, Magdalene Lampert is like dictating what happens and she's the only way that anyone's going to learn any mathematics. No, she's made everyone powerful in that classroom where everyone has the ability to, to explain their thinking, to you know, offer up their own thinking about the problem, share it within their group. So now we have a shared understanding within our small group. And then we all get to sh- contribute to the discussion uh, in the whole group session. And even if I'm not one that's actually talking in that whole group, part of my understanding, I can see in the person that, from my group that is talking in the whole class discussion. And so now I'm represented in some of the um, discussions that are going on. All of that, what is all that going to do? Improve my relationship with mathematics. So again, thinking about that, the common goal of pandemic is to save the world. The common goal in uh, a classroom is that we are learning the content that our teacher wants us to learn, right? Getting that desired relationship between uh, us as the students and the mathematics, right? So I like that. So thinking about pandemic, a board game, board game, lots of variables, all shooting for the same goal. We all either all win or we all lose. I like it. You know what? I think that's about it. This is a kind of a quick hitter. It's one of my favorite books. Again, I can't highly recommend it enough. I know that there's a lot of like first year books out there. I think this, again, this has a lot to offer, not only for the first year student, because it goes into how she sets up her classroom, how she reasons why she does what she does with regards to the using a single problem for her lessons. It then goes super deep. So even a doctoral student or someone that's really studying teaching at a deep level would get a lot out of this book. But I mean, it's just really, um, it's a valuable book, man. I would, I was be sad if I lost it. Um, but know that, know that it is out there for purchase if you're looking for it. So that is all I have for episode nine of the Amadon Planet podcast. The show notes for this episode can be found at amadonplanet.com forward slash episode nine. 
To support the podcast, you can do any or and or all of the following. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play. You can also follow the podcast in Spotify. You can share the podcast. You can rate and or review the podcast through iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can like the Amazon Planet uh, Facebook page where you can comment the podcast, ask questions, bring up angles on the content that were not mentioned in the podcast. You can subscribe to the Amazon Planet email list. You can do that, I think, through the Facebook page. There's a subscribe button. But there's also a subscribe button on AmazonPlanet.com. Uh, also, I have a Patreon account. If you're interested, you can search for Amazon uh, Planet, and you'll see the thing to support the Amazon Planet podcast. You can also reach me in the interwebs via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all on the handle at Amazon Planet. You can also find me on uh, LinkedIn as well. So thank you for taking the time to listen to episode nine of the Abaddon Planet podcast, Teaching with Problems. Thank you to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And you know what? Just in case you're wondering, the name of the track is Lost and Found. He's a very talented guy. So glad he was able to put that together for us. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to be better, teach better, and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.